ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Season 5, Episode 3 of Straight Talking English. I am your host, Catherine, as ever, str Talk English on Twitter, straighttalkingenglish.co.uk. You can buy the book that goes along with this series. It's called Frankenstein, The Full Context. You can buy it on my website, that is, straighttalkingenglish.co.uk, as I just said, slash books. Or if you go on Amazon, you search up The Full Context, you may well be able to find it. Very exciting. I'm actually proper proud of this one and I am going to be giving it away in a competition when I get my author copies through so that's something for us all to look forward to. I'm also on YouTube, did some context videos, likely to do some more as my lockdown is continuing and I am working from home. Right that's self-promotion out the way, on to the next order of business. Our voice actors today are Poonam and Terry. Terry would like me to tell you all about Team TC experiences. If you search this up on Facebook or you go on Airbnb slash Team TC Experiences, then the lovely Terry can show you all manner of cool stuff in our capital. She can give you a Spanish lesson. She can teach you how to cook vegan fish and chips. She can give you a tour around an art gallery. And she is an all-round good egg, so I heartily recommend that. Team TC Experiences. Poonam would like me to tell you all about some charities which are very, very close to her heart. She is involved in a project called Be Her Lead. They work with teachers to raise the aspirations of girls. It's a great cause and the the girls pair up with working mentors in the young ladies aspiring field. She's also like to tell you if you have any spare money, feel free to donate it to mine, to the mental health charity. So that's two fantastic organisations you may well not know about. Thank you very much to Poonam who is reading Mary Shelley's travelogue of seeing the Alps and also to Terry who is telling us the story of how Mary Shelley came to write Frankenstein and then lead-in of the day that is of course what we are going to talk about today is Mary Shelley and how she came to write Frankenstein this is going to be part one of a two-parter because once she had the idea for Frankenstein a lot more would happen between having the idea and getting the book on paper so it's quite a well-known story a little fun literary anecdote a couple of famous people hold up on holiday decide they're going to have a scary story competition out of that comes a book by Polidori called The Vampire which I heartily recommend of course Frankenstein and some works by the wonderful Lord Byron after whom one of my pets is named so this is the story of how Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein from her point of view as included in the introduction to a later copy of Frankenstein we will each write a ghost story said Lord Byron and his proposition was acceded to there were four of us The noble author began a tale, a fragment of which he printed at the end of his poem, Mazeppa. Shelley, a more apt to embody ideas and sentiments in the irradiance of brilliant imagery and in the music of the most melodious verse that adorns our language, than to invent the machinery of a story, commenced one founded on the experiences of his early life. Poor Polidori, and some terrible idea about a skull-headed lady who was so punished for peeping through a keyhole. What to see, I forget. Something very shocking and wrong, of course, but when she was reduced to worse condition than the renowned Tom of Coventry, he did not know what to do with her, and was obliged to dispatch her to the tomb of the Capulets, the only place for which she was fitted. The illustrious poets also, annoyed by the platitude of prose, speedily relinquished their 
uncongenial task. I busied myself to think of a story, a story to rival those which had excited us to this task, one which would speak to the mysterious fears of our nature and awaken thrilling horror, one to make the reader dread to look around, to curdle the blood and quicken the beatings of the heart. If I did not accomplish these things, my ghostly story would be unworthy of its name. I thought and pondered, vainly. I felt that blank in incapability of invention, which is the greatest misery of authorship, when dull, nothing replies to our anxious invocations. Have you thought of a story? I was asked each morning, and each morning I was forced to reply with a mortifying negative. Many and long were the conversations between Lord Byron and Shelley, to which I was a devout but nearly silent listener. During one of these, various philosophical doctrines were discussed, and among others the nature of the principle of life, and whether there was any probability of its ever being discovered and communicated. They talked of the experiments of Dr Darwin. I speak not of what the doctor really did, or said that he did, but as more to my purpose of what was then spoken of as having been done by him, who preserved a piece of vermicelli in a glass case, till by some extraordinary means it began to move with voluntary motion. Not thus, after all, would life be given. Perhaps a corpse would be reanimated. Galvanism had given token of such things. Perhaps the component parts of a creature might be manufactured, brought together and endued with vital warmth. Night waned upon this talk and even the witching hour had gone by before we retired to rest. When I placed my head on my pillow, I did not sleep, nor could I be said to think. My imagination, unbidden, possessed and guided me, gifting the successive images that arose in my mind with a vividness far beyond the usual bounds of reverie. I saw, with shut eyes, but acute mental vision, I saw the pale student of unhallowed arts kneeling beside the thing he had put together. I saw the hideous phantasm of a man stretched out and then on the working of some powerful engine show signs of life and stir with an uneasy, half-vital motion. Frightful must it be, for supremely frightful would be the effect of any human endeavour to mock the stupendous mechanism of the creator of the world. His success would terrify the artist. He would rush away from his odious handiwork, horror he would hope that, left to itself, the slight spark of life which he had communicated would fade, that this thing which had received such imperfect animation would subside into dead matter, and he might sleep in the belief that the silence of the grave would quench forever the transient existence of the hideous corpse which he had looked upon as the cradle of life. He sleeps, but he is awakened. He opens his eyes. Behold, the horrid thing stands at his bedside, opening his curtains and looking on him with yellow water but speculative eyes. I opened mine in terror. The idea so possessed my mind that the thrill of fear ran through me, and I wished to exchange the ghastly image of my fancy for the realities around. I see them still, the very room, the dark parquet, the closed shutters, with the moonlight struggling through, and the sense I had that the glassy lake and white alps were beyond. I could not easily get rid of my hideous phantom. Still, it haunted me. I must try to think of something else. I recurred to my ghost story, my tiresome, unlucky ghost story. Oh, if I could only contrive one which would frighten my reader, as I myself had been frightened that night. Swift as light, and as cheering was the idea that broke in upon me. I found it! What terrified me will terrify others, and I need only describe the spectre which had haunted my midnight pillow. On the morrow, I announced that I had thought of a story. I began that day with the words, It was on a dreary night of November, making only a transcript of the grim terrors of my waking dream. So, we have to go back in time, 
after that famous story to work out how exactly she got there, Mary Shelley was born on the 30th of August 1797 in London. The house she grew up in, if you walk past Spitalfields Market, so you've got the market on your left and you're walking past the burrito place like you're going to Shoreditch, it's there basically, is where she grew up. She did not know her mother. Her mother, Mary Wollstonecraft, died when she was 11 days old due to complications from childbirth. Her father, William, was left to raise her alone. William Godwin, we've mentioned him before, the political firebrand and writer. Mary Wollstonecraft, the serious feminist lady. It isn't really surprising that Mary Shelley grew up to be a little bit of a celebrity. In 1831, she wrote that I should very early in my life have thought of writing. As a child, I scribbled and my favourite pastime during the hours given me for recreation was to quote-unquote, write stories. Still, I had a dearer pleasure than this, which was the formation of castles in the air, the indulging in waking dreams, the following up trains of thought which had for their subject the formation of a succession of imaginary incidents. My dreams were at once more fantastic and agreeable than my writings. In the latter, I was a close imitator, rather doing as others had done than putting down the suggestions of my own mind. What I wrote was intended for at least one other eye, my childhood companion and friend. But my dreams were all my own. I encountered for them to nobody. They were my refuge when annoyed, my dearest pleasure when free. In later life, she's painted her like childhood as being really tough. And yet, they did not have a lot of money. Okay cool and um, there's never going to be a lot of money in being a writer let's face it i can tell you that but there are some points in which she was very lucky her dad was always inviting people around for dinner and we are not talking about you know like dad's mate from over the road we've got the big hitters samuel taylor coleridge uh, after whom another one of my pets is named was a frequent visitor and there's this lovely little anecdote which hasn't like been proven by anyone that Coleridge came over to read his poem The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner in which a guy ends up cursed because he kills an albatross and it's supposed to be quite scary or it was considered scary at the time and Mary Shelley snuck down from her room and hid behind her sofa so she could hear this scary poem being read aloud another big name who is going to come up in a couple of weeks Sir Humphrey Davy also came over on the regular. Davy reminds me so much of like a stereotypical presentation of Sherlock Holmes. Intelligent, charismatic, completely arrogant, <laughs> apparently had no friends, which uh, I, I'm always enjoying. I was reminded of this yesterday actually, I figured I may as well tell you. I once got called in to my assistant principal's office when I was in the classroom and she asked me if I had any friends. And I was like, oh, on staff? I was like, yeah, the head of RE is my mate, like one of the history teachers. No, she was just worried that I didn't have any friends at all, as in like, am I capable of making friends? And I just looked at her in bafflement and was like, yes, yes, I have friends. And she just seemed really surprised by that. And looking back, that whole incident was deeply bizarre. Like, why would you ask someone as like their manager if they have friends it was so odd but yeah like unlike sir humphrey davy i do have friends <laughs> well speaking of friends oh my links are so good today ultimate frenemy 
then came into Mary Shelley's life. So, the lady next door, Mary Jane Claremont. I'm actually quite a fan of her, to be honest. She decided that she liked William Godwin. She decided that she liked what he was about. And she chatted him up and was like, oh, hello, William Godwin. Yes, they were dating. She had two children from a previous relationship and then they got married, which was also hilarious because she did a little bit of a lie and she told Godwin, oh yes, my husband ran away, but actually she hadn't been married to the father of her children and um, they had to have two sneaky weddings. One where she married Godwin under her assumed name and she married Godwin again under her actual maiden name because she was going by someone else's married name. It's well complicated and by the way everyone in this story is called Mary or Jane so I'm gonna try and simplify it. Alright, Mary is Mary Shelley, Mary Jane is her stepmom. However, Mary Shelley always insisted that her stepmother didn't really love her and was like oh you Mary Shelley shut up. They had this blended family. So you had Mary Shelley her sister Fanny Imlay, who was her mum's daughter from a previous relationship. You had Jane and another child who'd come in as Mary Jane Claremont's daughters. And then there were two sons who were born with Godwin. So there's like five, six kids running around. Mary Jane Claremont is having to like run all of this. There's no money. She's trying to make ends meet. And Mary Shelley is like, but you don't treat me like a princess. You don't love me. And a lot of biographers differ on this, to be honest. Did she have an emotionally neglected childhood? Maybe, maybe not. However, things got a little bit better when they worked out a business plan and it was a children's bookshop. I cannot think of anywhere better to grow up than a bookshop, to be honest. I would absolutely love this. So Mary Shelley is running around this bookshop, kind of selling stuff, reading the books, and it's here that she sort of tries to make sense of who she is. Much like John Agard, checking out my history, she researches a bit more into her mum and she ends up having this weird, like cult of her own mother she grows up venerating mary wollstonecraft and she is this big i am this big looming figure in mary's life age 14 mary develops eczema on her arms and neck in a lot of pictures of her as a young lady she has a lot of herself covered and from what she's recorded in her diaries and her family have written down, it sounds like she had severe eczema. She was sent away to live by the seaside because sea air cures eczema. Um, I, I don't know if it does. I, I don't really think it does at all. It makes your hair kind of dry, but that didn't work. She was uh, getting a bit moody about being sent away from her family. So what did they do? Go to Scotland. They sent her off to live with like this distant fanboy friend of the Go of the Godwins. And not only did she get to be independent, but she got to see a bunch of these Arctic whaling ships. Just like Captain Walton's ship. She would see them resupplying, bringing back their whale oil and I assume like Arctic trinkets. And while she was staying there, her and her bestie would sit and watch these ships come in and out. Eventually, Godwin decided to get some money together and was like, all right, Mary, you're probably cured now. Yeah. Like, part of it is kind of like, okay, if we send her, we pretend that she's going away for medical reasons, we don't have to pay for her. But 
she gets to come back when Godwin has secured some cash money from none other than Mr. Percy Bysshe Shelley, dashing young poet, of course. The reason her trip to Scotland, other than everything else, being important thinking about wales and um the setting for the end of frankenstein where frankie makes the mo- the monster's bride is that she came back with a red tartan dress this red tartan dress was what first attracted percy to her thomas hogg who will be important he is percy shelley's bestie wrote a very like flattering biography of shelley after he died and he remembered when they met a thrilling voice called Shelley. A thrilling voice answered, Mary. And he darted out of the room like an arrow from the bow of a far shooting king. A very young female, fair and fair haired, pale indeed and with a piercing look, wearing a frock of tartan, an unusual dress in London at that time, had called him out of the room. He was absent a short time, a minute or two then we returned. So we continued our walk along Hoban. Who was that, pray? I asked, a daughter? Yes, a daughter of William Godwin. The daughter of Godwin and Mary. What scandal. She liked Shelley. She thought he was cool, but it may not have been love at first sight. Later she said, yeah, 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 that was it. We were sorted. But at least at first they met, like in public at family dinners, he was her family's benefactor. And he sort of fitted all these ideas of freedom and her mum's writings on freedom that she'd grown up with. And she was like, oh, yes. Not long after, Mary's sister Jane was asked to provide excuses for the family so they could meet up alone. Jane was also asked to go for a walk with Mary, just Mary, yes, not meeting anybody else. And Jane would like stand out the way while they'd kiss. She confessed her love for him and either kissed for the first time or had sex at her mother's grave (laughs) at old euston churchyard which is now sort of just over the road from euston station it has those big egyptian looking gee columns on it real class it's like her mother is blessing their union all right bit creepy So that's not a big deal for Shelley. Shelley is already like, yeah, he's been kicked out of uni for being an atheist. He's got some money, but he lives this like really dissolute lifestyle. But for Mary, it's a big deal. The fact she's kissed someone and or had sex with them means that she is officially now a fallen woman. Quite quickly, she staked everything on Shelley being a winner. By the 28th of July, 1814, when Mary Mary would be 17, they snuck out of the house. Jane came to, and unsurprisingly, Mary was like, I'm gonna elope with uh, Percy, sure she needs to come. And Percy was like, no, you are both oppressed. I will free you, you romantically, and you from your oppression of your family. They snuck across to France. Not too bad, right? Problem is, (laughs) the stepmom finds them in France and tries to get them to come home, and they're like, They travelled all around France, all around Switzerland, all around Germany, having this really lovely trip. The moment she sees the Alps, though, is really, really important. This moment of first being there, first seeing Mont Blanc, 
is what inspired Shelley's poem, Percy Shelley's poem Mont Blanc, but also is what she was thinking of when she wrote the scene where they confront each other on top of the mountain to old Vicky and his monster. This is what she saw on that day. I spent the following day roaming through the valley. I stood beside the sources of the rivers, which take their rise in a glacier, that with slow pace is advancing down from the very top of the hills to barricade the valley. The abrupt sides of vast mountains were before me. The icy wall of the glacier overhung me. A few shattered pines were scattered around and the solemn silence of this glorious home of imperial nature was broken only by the brawling waves or the fall of some vast piece of stone. The thunder sound of the avalanche or the cracking echoed along the mountain of the accumulated ice. These sublime scenes afforded me the greatest comfort that I was capable of receiving. They took away my petty mood, and although they did not remove my grief, in some degree also, they diverted my mind from the thought over which it brooded for the last month. I retired to rest at night. My dreams, as it were, waited on the memories of grand shapes which I had experienced during the day. The unstained snowy mountaintop, the glittering summit, the pine woods, and the ragged, bare ravine, the eagle soaring amidst the clouds. The way up the mountain is dangerously steep, but the path is cut into shorter ledges, which enable you to overcome the steep slopes of the mountain. It is a scene terrifically desolate. In a thousand spots, the traces of the winter avalanche may be seen, where trees lie broken and left untidily on the ground, some entirely destroyed, others bent, leaning upon the jutting rocks of the mountain, or on their sides upon other trees. The path, as you climb higher, is crossed by valleys of snow, down which stones continually roll from above, one of them is particularly dangerous, as the slightest sound, such as even speaking in a loud voice, creates enough air to draw destruction upon the head of the speaker. The pines are not tall, but they are serious, and add an air of severity to the scene. I look on the valley beneath. Vast mists were rising from the rivers which ran through it and curling in thick wreaths around the opposite mountains, while rain poured from the dark sky and added to the melancholy view I received from the objects around me. Alas, wise man so proud of having a greater depth of feeling than an animal. If our impulses were confined to hunger, thirst and desire, we might be nearly free. But now, we are moved by every wind that blows. When they ran out of money, they ended up coming back to London. This would be quite a feature in Percy's life, is always being skint. So what do you do? You're back in London and Mary's found out that she's pregnant. Percy needs to hit someone up for a loan, which is kind of silly because he's already given Godwin his loan. Whatever, probably doesn't really want to talk to Godwin. So he goes to, drum roll please, 
the woman he's still married to because the whole way through this Percy Shelley is married to a nice lady called Harriet they already have two children he is separated from Harriet while she was pregnant with his second child some letters he genuinely seems to care about his children other letters doesn't really care it's like oh great oh great and the thing with him and Harriet is strikingly strikingly similar to how he met Mary Shelley I met this young lady she was being oppressed and then I had to love her it's definitely got a type so he goes to Harriet he gets Mary and Jane to wait round a corner and he's like I need to borrow some money just so I can be set up and then I'll be able to pay you child support yes and she's like okay then neither Harriet didn't know it would be going to support Mary and Mary didn't know where the money was coming from it is all just really awkward and it really paints Percy Bysshe Shelley in a terrible terrible light Mary is in love with Shelley very much so and they set up in this little house with Jane of course the eternal third wheel now if we were going to use modern terms which Percy Shelley probably wouldn't have known he definitely wouldn't have known we would call him polyamorous this is also known as consenting non-monogamy where a couple decide that they're going to include other people in their relationship and have second third however many you want partners everyone is consenting everyone is fully knowledgeable about the arrangement and that can work for some couples it doesn't work for other couples and the vibe i get is that percy shelley would have really liked to be polyamorous he considered marriage to be one of like society's institutions that we need to get rid of and he firmly firmly encouraged mary to start a second relationship while she's still with him with his best mate thomas hogg the biographer guy in the meantime <laughs> he's getting very friendly with jane the half-sister now another point on names right at this point jane changes her name to claire claire claremont i'm going to be calling her claire from now on right so Claire is the sister, Mary is Mary Shelley, Percy is Percy Shelley, and Hogg, his friend's name is Thomas Hogg, but I'm just going to keep calling him Hogg because he sounds like a happy piggy. Hogg, from what I can tell, is quite a nice guy. Mary liked him as a friend, and she was fine with like having a close friend. Hogg liked Mary and would quite happily have begun this relationship with her as well as Percy but while this is going on it's clear that Percy and Claire are getting a lot closer Mary does not like this understandably some biographers say that Percy and Claire were having a full-blown like sexual affair and some are like no they were just good friends we don't know but either way Mary Shelley didn't like it she was miserable she was lonely the next bit i'm going to tell you about is actually really upsetting uh content warning we're talking about infant mortality and this actually really upset me when i first read it so skip ahead a few seconds if that's going to cause you distress in february 1815 mary gave birth to a baby girl who died 13 days later 
person she wrote to was Thomas Hogg. She said, my baby is dead. Will you come to me as soon as you can? I wish to see you. It was perfectly well when I went to bed. I woke in the night to give it suck, to feed it, and it appeared to be sleeping so quietly that I could not awake it. It was then dead, but we did not find that out till morning. From its appearance, it evidently died of convulsions. So it had a fit. Percy doesn't really care about the fact we have this like 17, 18 year old girl who has just been bereaved, has just lost her first child, who is absolutely distraught. In her diary, she wrote, dreamt that my little baby came to life again, that it had only been cold and that we rubbed it by the fire and it lived. I awake and find no baby. I think about the little thing all day. It just breaks my heart, the, the fact that someone that's year 12 age is going through all of this. I mean, we argue that a lot of her fears and losses around childbirth are what comes into Frankenstein. Childbirth is bloody, it's messy, it's life-threatening. She would not have had this experience in her life before. It's not like she saw her mother give birth to a sibling. This is new, it's horrifying, it's upsetting, and it's what comes into the birth scene in Frankenstein. Shelley, ugh, Percy don't waste no time. Shortly afterwards, she is pregnant again, and she gives birth to William quite shortly after she loses her first baby, because, yes, in the meantime, Claire decides to net a poet of her own. They always have this weird, like, sister rivalry, where it's like, oh, you've got a poet. Oh, I'm going to get a poet. Cool. And she puts the moves on Lord Byron. Byron, in the mo at this point, is a bit of a fading celebrity. He's in the middle of this, like, scandalous divorce. All these details about many, many affairs he's having with men, women, and his half-sister have all come out. Claire sends him a letter that's like, Hello, handsome Byron. Would you like a no-strings-attached weekend? Yes. And Byron's like, okay then, I I'm feeling pretty miserable. You sound nice. Cool. They get it on, and she is very keen to carry this affair on and try and snag, snag herself a Byron. Problem is, Byron's not that keen. Byron, he's still got a bit of celebrity power. He's still quite good-looking. He's not that bothered. She does get pregnant at some point in their interaction, however, but that's not quite yet. This is 1816, the year without a summer. Basically, there was a massive volcano in Indonesia, Mount Tambora. It was incredibly massive, this explosion. It could be heard 1600 miles away. Ash fell 800 miles away. And for the two days following this explosion, 350 miles surrounding the mountain were in pitch darkness. This was in 1815, so by the time we get to 1816, the ash has all blown onto Europe. We do not get a proper summer. Everything is dark, everything is gloomy, everything is gothic. And it's generally the most miserable, ashen-y place Despite not being put off by this, Claire has this bright idea. She says, well, Percy, Mary, you've got baby William now. You've had some 
tough times, why don't we go on holiday? We can meet up with Lord Byron and his mates, and then we can all go on holiday together to, like, Italy, Switzerland. It'll take three months. It'll be great. Byron's, like, okay, fine when they show up, like, hi, you again. But they are still sleeping together. Shelley is pretty happy. Shelley and Byron get on uh, like a like a barrel of monkeys. They they are absolutely on fire together. They are having a great trip. So we have the teenage new mother of the baby, that is Mary. We have Percy, the frankly terrible husband of Mary. <laughs> and little Byron their doctor polidori who is he likes mary he actually has a bit of a crush on her but she's like no thank you the last thing i need is any more of this nonsense and their friends we have claire who's desperately trying to get the attentions of byron look over here byron hello and byron he's just like poncing around I am, I am the big I am, look at me, I'm Byron, yeah. And these are the characters that sit down to write the ghost story. However, just a quick, a quick point before I go. That story, the anecdote we heard at the start, takes place on their second night of ghost stories. The first night, Polidori decides to tell a story about a woman who has eyes on her boobies. Instead of nipples, there are eyeballs. This upsets Shelley so much that he has nightmares and sleepwalks. Mary finds her dear, lovely husband, dear, lovely boyfriend downstairs. She's like, wake up, wake up, Percy. And he's like, the eyeballs, boobies, no! And the night before she's expected to like try and come up with a story she has to deal with her husband keep saying husband they're not actually married at this point her partner screaming about how hideous the female body is like don't touch me so she's already got this body horror lurking in the back of her mind and that dear listener is where i shall leave you for this week on our story of mary shelley believe me there is a lot more to come before Frankenstein is actually written or finished. Thank you so much for listening. Remember, you can buy the book that goes along with this series, Amazon, the full context. Check it out on my website, straighttalkingenglish.co.uk. You can follow me on Twitter, str8talkenglish on Twitter. You can support the show. I have a Patreon. Go on to straighttalkingenglish.co.uk. Support the project. And you can check me out on YouTube. Remember, buy the books, check the YouTube, support the project. Love to you all on this dark and gothic year without a summer. Well, we had one, but we, we was all in lockdown for it, whatever. And I'll return next week for more Frankenstein drama.